Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to New Valley. My name is Scott, and I am so, so glad that you have joined us for worship today as we continue in a series called A Light in Darkness. And in this time, we're looking at different imagery and metaphors that the Bible gives us for the church. Already, we've looked for a light uh, for darkness, a family for orphans last week, and today, a kingdom for exiles. When Peter wrote the passage that Amanda just read, he was writing to the church, of course, the early church, which was very much in its infancy. And so at that time, the early church had a situation where every institution in their culture was antagonistic to them. And this is the context in which Peter writes as they suffer. And they're wondering, how do we deal with the authorities in our life, the, the king and Caesar and the like? And he writes into that. What should they do? Should they retreat from culture completely? Should they take up arms against them, uh, against culture? Should they be compromised by culture? Peter would say no to all of those things, but instead he calls them to be holy on the one hand, and he calls them to be a people that would be on mission to their city and their nation in such a way that people would be drawn into faith in Jesus. But above all in our passage today, Peter calls the early church to have an identity that is rooted in the kingdom of God. And today what I want us to see is this. The more our identity is rooted in the kingdom of God, the less we find ourselves at home in the kingdoms of this world. This will be the central idea that we're looking at today. And this, I believe, is what we desperately need for these times. As we deal with uh, multiple layers of crisis today around the world with a pandemic, but also all of the, the division that we're experiencing in our culture and, and, and of course, in politics, this is what we need more than ever as the people of God. So let's look at a kingdom identity where Peter says this, as he's laying out this identity for the people of God in verses 9 through 10, he says, you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. And then he says this, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he, Peter is himself a faithful Jew who's come to see Jesus as Messiah. And what's interesting is he's using all of the Old Testament imagery for the people of Israel now for the people of God who are called the church. He calls them a chosen race, just like Israel, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, God's people. And their purpose in life is to proclaim the excellencies of the one that has called them out of darkness and into light. He reminds them of this great mercy of God. And then he says this in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. Ultimately, he is urging them, calling them to see themselves in their identity as 
sojourners. And that word sojourner means to live in a place temporarily. And then he calls them to be exiles, the state of being barred from your native country, your home country. And of course, this is so much a part of the story of Israel. They were sojourners so often in their history, cut off from the land of Israel or exiled from the land of Israel in their native country. And ultimately what he's saying is this, the Christian has Christ as their king ultimately, and as they're thinking about how to relate to culture and to the authorities in their life, he is saying this, ultimately Christ is your king and your citizenship, church, is ultimately in the kingdom of God. And Peter says, you should be so rooted in your citizenship in the kingdom of God that you see yourself as a sojourner in the land in which you live. Someone who's living, living here temporarily. Peter says that we should be so rooted in our identity as the people of the kingdom of God, as citizens in the kingdom of God, that we would see our current situation as being in exile from our permanent home, our native home. Peter's audience, this early church spread around what is today modern Turkey, was able to grasp this so readily because at this moment in time, as soon as they were baptized, they found themselves in opposition to their family and their friends and their neighbors and ultimately even the authorities in their life who eventually would begin to threaten them with their life themselves. Perhaps for Christians in China and North Korea and the Middle East and Pakistan and India can more readily grasp this as the same is true for them. As soon as they're baptized, they find themselves at odds with people and structures in, in their society that are antagonistic to them in their faith. But for us in the West, and particularly in the United States, where we have lived in a cultural time in which at times it's felt like Christianity and our culture has overlapped, it has been more difficult for us up to this point at times to see ourselves rightly as exiles and as sojourners. Some people, though, today speak of this exile as though we need to get back to the good old days when America, they would say, used to be a Christian nation. In an article in 2013, Phil Robertson, the patriarch of the show Duck Dynasty and the owner of that same company, recounted his experience growing up in Louisiana, and he said this, I never with my own eyes saw the mistreatment of any black person, not once. Now, this, of course, caused quite an uproar because the time period that Robertson was referring to was the same time when blacks in the South were being subjected to Jim Crow laws. They were separate from restaurants, from whites. They weren't allowed to use the same restaurants as whites, as you know. Not, the, not able to use the same bathrooms as white people or, or the same water fountain. They would have to sit in the back of the bus. Black people were being systematically excluded from all sorts of rights, including the ability to vote. And there was little or no justice served for them when violence and murders was done against them. And yet... Most white Christians in the South saw the Southern way of life and Christianity as being so woven together that they had a difficult time separating them and they saw them as the same without any distinction. And therefore, Christians at that time participated both personally and in the system of great sin against, against black people in that culture. 
They allowed the identity of the South to be their primary identity and failed to see themselves in that moment as citizens of the kingdom of God who were called to see uh, the fellow image bearers in their midst and their needs and to care for them in that moment. And in so doing, it was so sad because so many Christians in that moment were silent and so many churches were as well. Russell Moore writes, the scriptures call on all Christians everywhere to be strangers and exiles in whatever culture we inhabit. This does not mean a lack of engagement. Right after speaking of the church as exiles, Peter instructs the church on how to act among the Gentiles, how to respond to human institutions, including political institutions. In fact, that's exactly what he's talking about in the passage just after the one that we read today. The kind of exiles we're to be, Russell Moore writes, is not bitter, resentful people hearkening back to better days when we had more power and influence. We are to be instead those who know that the culture around us, whatever culture that is, is temporary. We are to pattern our lives, not after nostalgia for the past, but hope for the future. Hope in the coming kingdom that Jesus inaugurated when he came to planet Earth and he said, Repent and believe the good news because the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus Christ came and began to teach and minister among us, he declared the kingdom of God was at hand. And then he called us to the great commission to call people into this kingdom of grace and of light by faith to believe in the gospel and be baptized and walk with Christ and to obey all that he's commanded us. In Matthew 5, Jesus said this. You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That's what King Jesus says. But here is our political climate. Here is our candidate. And he or she is the solution to all of the world's problems. And over there, that is their candidate. And their candidate is the problem, is the main problem with the world and and, and, and can be summarized as, as the greatest problem. Scott Sauls writes in his good book, uh, Jesus Outside the Lines, he says this, leaning toward a certain party is one thing, a political party. Matthew did it, he writes, Simon did it, and Jesus allowed it. But it's important to see that a partisan spirit can actually run against the Spirit of God. He goes on to write, I grow perplexed when Christian men and women willingly participate in political spin, ready, willing, and armed to follow the world in telling half-truths to promote their candidate while telling more half-truths to demonize their opponents. Have we forgotten that a half-truth is the equivalent of a full lie? And maybe you have felt this way as well as you spend time on social media and see people who loudly proclaim their faith as Christians but are sharing political spin online that is based on half-truths and lies and at times conspiracies. Jesus calls us to love our enemies and to pray for them. But our political environment says this, destroy your enemies and lie about them if you have to because we must win at all costs. The great pastor and theologian Eugene Peterson wrote this. It's the oldest religious mistake. Refusing to countenance 
any real difference between God and us. Imagining God to be a vague extrapolation of our own desires. And friends, this is often what we do individually, but cultures and political movements do this as well. We begin to, to operate in such a way that we think that whatever we hold dear and whatever we're passionate about, that those, those same passions and desires and ideas are exactly God's convictions. And if you begin to say to yourself that, that God always agrees with me, then what we're doing is creating a God in our own imagery, image. And, and you know ultimately exactly what that is. That's, that's idolatry. Every society has done this. All, every individual has done this. We've all done this. We've all committed idolatry. But we have to in this moment, more than ever, I believe, understand the ways in which we're doing this in order to do better as the followers of Jesus in this moment. You may lean towards being a Republican, but know this. Your party and your platform is not the party of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not one and the same. You may lean to be a Democrat, but know this. Your party and that party's platform is not the party of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not one and the same. We live, though, in this broken and fallen world and the followers of Jesus are not called to escape and to leave culture, but we are called to help see the gospel transform culture. So we don't take up arms against culture. We don't, we don't escape. We're a part of the process. But at the same time, I am gravely concerned in this moment for people who follow Jesus. That in our zeal for our cause or our candidate that we begin to utterly deny the commands of Christ, if we're not careful, to love our neighbor, to seek the good of our city, and to be a people of truth, and yet a people of grace. We must embrace truth, and we must embrace grace. And friends, we've said this here before, and I'll say it again. You cannot pin Jesus down with our political categories. Jesus is way more conservative than Republicans, and he's far more liberal than Democrats. Faithfulness to Jesus is for us to root ourselves in this moment in the identity as Jesus is our king and ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed that he was ushering in when he came and then ultimately promises to usher in in his fullness when he comes again and to see ourselves currently as exiles people who are still currently cut off from our home country people who are sojourners people who are living here only temporarily there's a sense in which we should find ourselves looking uh, from the outside in and a bit homeless when it comes to the kingdoms of this world all of us have various identities all of us have a story. All of us have a place from which we grew up and a family and a home. And all of these things shape us and give us a sense of identity. And the reality is they're not all bad things when they're in their proper place. One of the central parts of my identities, uh, identity is that I am a Purdue Boilermaker. At my core, I just am. I was born just a few miles from campus at Home Hospital. My dad went to Purdue University for three degrees and became a professor there later. I went to my first 
Purdue football game and basketball games uh, before I could even talk. Um, I went to Purdue. My siblings went to Purdue. I get chill bumps when I hear uh, the Purdue fight song sung and played by a band. I have cried tears of joys over Purdue's uh, athletic victories because they are few and far between. In the 1980s, Purdue was the very height of my identity. I was in college and I was totally caught up in my boilermakerness, and I loved it and was so passionate. And our basketball coach at that time was a man named Gene Cady, who is still alive. And to me, Gene Cady and Purdue University was 100% good on the one hand. On the other hand, in the state of Indiana, of course, Bobby Knight was Indiana's basketball coach, and he was 100% bad and 100% wrong. I was a liberal arts major at Purdue University. And if you know anything about Purdue, it is a science school. It's an agricultural school. It's an engineering school. It is not a liberal arts college. But just to the south of Purdue is a school called Indiana University. It is a liberal arts college. It is a history college. I should have gone there instead of Purdue, but that literally would have felt like sin to me to participate in such a horrible place like Indiana But because God has such a great sense of humor, I literally planted New Valley Church with Carson Joyner, a graduate of IU, and and another couple of the Cutscos who had just recently graduated from IU. And because the gospel is real, we we can have unity together. Purdue is a part of my identity. Phoenix and Tempe is now very much a part of my identity, and I love ASU. I love Arizona State University, and I root for them, but this will drive most of you crazy here in Arizona because I also root for the University of Arizona when they're not playing ASU. How can I do that? Well, in a sense, I'm able to do that because having moved to the state from the outside and not having grown up with ASU the way that I grew up uh, with Purdue, I'm able to look at this rivalry between the U of A and, and ASU from the outside looking in. In a sense, I'm, I'm an exile, I'm a sojourner. I'm, I'm seeing myself from the outside. And the truth is now with age, believe it or not, because the gospel is so powerful in my life, I've been able to even root for IU at times. Friends, Our identities have to change over time. They have to grow up in the gospel and mature in who Jesus is and see ourselves rooted more and more in the kingdom of God. I love our country. I care about politics and ideas and policies. But at the end of the day, my citizenship is bound up in the kingdom of God ultimately. Jesus as Lord. The answer going forward for us is found in our passage today. And this is what we need profoundly. In verse 10 of our passage, Peter writes this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The problem with a strong political identity is how much it causes us to lean into self-righteousness and leads us, if we're not careful, to quench the power of the gospel in our lives. Let me say that again. The problem with an over-realized political identity 
is how much it leads to self-righteousness instead of, of Christ's righteousness and mercy that we need. It necessarily causes us to create enemies and see ourselves as good and the other as bad. Conservatives will say there are good people and there are bad people in the world. Good people understand the need for law and order in the world and society, and I am a good person because I obey the laws. There is right and there is wrong, and I seek to do what is right. I keep the laws. I believe in small government. I believe in lower taxes. I'm on the right side of the equation. Progressives say there are good people and there are bad people in the world. Good people care about the poor and do justice for the poor and the oppressed, and bad people don't. I'm good. They're bad. I believe in a bigger government, more taxes for programs for people in need, and I am on the right side of the political equation. The problem is with the human heart is that we are always seeking to justify ourselves. We are always building systems of self-righteousness, trying to prove ourselves. We're trying to earn salvation. But the gospel comes along and says something very, very different. The gospel comes along and says this. There is a right and a wrong in the world. There is truth in the world. There is good and there is evil. But the truth is no one has done good. There is none good. All have fallen short of the glory of God and have sinned against the holy of God. The conservative who loves law and order needs to see that the millions and millions of ways in which they have broken God's law and God's order and that they're lawbreakers who are in need of God's mercy. The progressives need to see how little they actually love their neighbor as much as they love themselves and how, fall they, how much they fall short of showing the justice of God and how imperfect they are in their pursuit of justice for the poor and the oppressed. No matter how much they try, we must see that we are far from God on our own and that we have been brought close to God. We who were far off, we who were not a people of God, Gentiles, many of us, most of us, who did not know God in this world, were brought near, brought close, found a Savior in Jesus Christ, not because we are righteous, not because we're good, not because we're law keepers, not because we're social justice warriors who've done it correctly. No, because of the mercy and the kindness of God who's overlooked all the ways in which we've rebelled against him, ultimately by not loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and not loving our neighbor as ourselves, because that is the heart of the law. And it is by mercy that we've been saved. By grace you have been saved. And this is not a work that you've done. It's by grace. Peter says you were once not a people, but now you are the recipients of mercy. How desperately we need to see this. We are God's people. Citizens, not because we were good, but because Jesus has been good to us. Not because we are holy, but because Christ has been holy. Friends, truth matters. Justice matters. But none of us have earned it. And when we reject self-righteousness and we lead into a gospel identity that I am a part of God's people, but it's not because I've earned it. And it's not because I'm better. It's surely the mercy of God. How much more are we equipped with this resource in this moment to love our neighbor more and more and more. P. 
Peter does say, though, at the end of our passage in verse 11, that we must wage war against our flesh. And when he says flesh in this moment, he doesn't mean our physical bodies. And the Bible does use that word for that purpose. But ultimately, oftentimes in the New Testament, the word flesh means our sinful nature, our selfish inclination, the ways in which we live for ourselves. And in Galatians 5, Paul gives us a list of the fruit of the Spirit that the the Spirit will bring into our life, things like love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. But he also lists the fruit of the flesh. And in Galatians 5, he writes this, not the works of the, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, will not find their citizenship in the kingdom of God will not find a home in the kingdom of God. And as we look at this list, there's a sense in which, of course, we all find ourselves doing these things at some level, especially in our hearts with impure motives and so forth. But the reality is this. If your life is defined by this, you should, you should take note. And he says this, right along with very serious sins like sexual immorality, he lists enmity, which means hostility. Strife, which means bitter disagreement, causing strife. Fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. He lists these right along with these other sins of the flesh, like sexual immorality. And he warns us that those who practice such things and live into these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so as we lean into God's mercy and find our identity as the people of God, I just want to encourage you this day, in this moment, in the middle of this crisis, as we experience all of the pressures and we're living at this time of great division, friends, as the people of God, we are called to be salt, to bring flavor to the world, to help stop the decay in our culture. We are called to be light, to be lifted up in such a way like a city on a hill, to guide people to the loving God and the just God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to be God's people. And if you are giving yourself to this list as as we enter into this political season of enmity, fits of rage, strife, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions, I call you to repentance. I I call you to be mindful of the ways in which you would speak online, in person, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, perhaps it's time for us to find ourselves rooted more and more and more in the kingdom of God and our citizenship there. If we see that in our own hearts, may we repent of that. If we are giving full-throated support to candidates that are adding to these same attributes, may we turn, may we repent and humbly find ourselves saying to ourselves, I am rooted in the kingdom of God. Ultimately, I am a citizen of this country, but I am a sojourner here. I am an exile waiting for the full completion of Jesus Christ, my king to return, full of grace, full of truth. Let's pray.
Father, now in this moment in our history where we are bitterly divided and where in our society because of political tribalism, different visions for the world, we are divided, we are in rivalries, there is dissension, there is hostility and bitter disagreement, Father, and I pray for us as the church that we would turn from that, that we'd be mindful of what you, your spirit taught us through the apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 13, that love must triumph over all things, that if we have not love, then we're nothing. Spirit of God, would you move in such a way that we would love our neighbor, that we would be identified more and more as citizens of the kingdom of God and not the the kingdoms of this world that run in opposition to your priorities. Oh Lord, may we have your heart for truth and may we have your heart for grace and mercy. We ask this in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen.